Unfolding the eternal excellences, the hidden insights of the truth and the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have not pointed to your weaknesses. He says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have pointed to your strength. And this is your strength, that I am Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of freedom, the glimpses into eternity. The gospel is not supposed to be an assumption. It's not supposed to be just a mere presupposition. Truth is older than language, but the word of God is way deeper than any human language. And now, Apostle Grace with the word. Today, I want to teach us a very integral lesson of life and begins fundamentally from a question. If you understand temptation because we've all been tested and tempted by Satan. What is that one thing or tool you know he uses most among the sons of men? If I was to ask that question fundamentally, what is that one thing generally we have all been tempted, tried and tested against by the devil. What is that core pattern that we see the devil use to lead us into sin? This is what I want to talk about today. Because you see, if you don't understand the core of things, if you don't understand the pattern of things, if you don't understand how it works, you are bound to fall in sin and live a sinful life even when you don't want to. Paul says, we are not ignorant of his devices. We are not ignorant of the devices of the devil. We're not supposed to be ignorant of the devices of the devil. That means we're not supposed to sit in a class, for example, of 30 hours teaching you how that devil works. That's not how it's supposed to work. But it's through the revelation of God that we understand how the devil works because he made him. It's important for you to know the devil from the vision God gives you about him, not necessarily what he gives about himself. You know, I've been dealing with people, for example, when you're dealing with former Satanists, okay? Somebody was a devil worshiper in the kingdom of Satan for a long time. And then they get born again. They've received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So they have a vision about God albeit only from the experiences that they have had in the period they've gotten to know God, okay? But this person has been serving Satan for 20 years or 30 years or 50 years of serving the kingdom of Satan. That means they know more about Satan than they know God in the few months they have known God. Do you agree? They need to go through the pattern of understanding scripture, interpreting, you know, to decipher mysteries and in the right interpretation and optics as God has written. So they need time. Okay? So somebody comes from the kingdom of Satan who has been serving Satan for 20, 30 years. Then he becomes born again. Yes, they have a revelation of God, but it's not full. Are you following me? Because they've just known God. They need to walk the process like you have. They need to go to church. They need to understand Genesis, Revelation, Malachi, Matthew. You think that a guy who was a former devil worshiper for 20 years or 30 years because he's received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, therefore he can interpret the book of Corinthians? No. 
He has to go through the process. You who has been born again for years went through. He has to also understand what's the New Testament? What's the Old Testament? What is this thing called sin? What is the shedding of blood? What does that mean? What is the gift of righteousness imputed? How do I walk through faith? How do I walk by faith and not by sight? How do I pray? How do I believe? How do I apply myself? Because salvation is a process of understanding progressively. Are you following? So you get that guy who has not even known God fully. And then because he's a former Satanist, he now stands on the pulpit to teach people about the kingdom of Satan. And almost some of them, the biggest percentage of what they assume they know is actually false because it's from a foundation of a deceiver called Satan. Are you following what I'm saying? So when they start walking in God for years, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, you realize they stop talking about that. And then they focus more on God. Why? Because that dissonance of now starting to understand who God is, they start to realize how much deception they had while they were still serving the devil. You following what I'm saying? So when they get that deception, some of them, they repent. They have to go back and correct some of the mistakes that they made at their onset when they were standing justified before people because they later realized that what they were teaching was wrong based on the deception Satan had given them. I'll give you one. For my Satanist, she's on TV, no radio, I think, or TV. And then she's telling people that every year, only about two or three people go to heaven. Satan used to show them. And so she's trying to emphasize how hard it is to go to heaven and how easy it is to go to hell. So she assumed, or she was teaching, that every time they were in hell, Satan would show them how many people have gone to heaven and how many haven't. And they would see that in the air, two or three people go to heaven. Ah, okay. If I was the devil, that's exactly what I would show. You understand? Because if I show more people going to heaven and less people going to hell, these people will figure out and say, wait a minute, who is the bigger master? Who is the stronger one? So what will he do? He'll have to cast a false vision on them and make them believe that in the realm with which they see, because already they are functioning in a realm that is unseen, already it's enough credence for them to assume that whatever they see spiritually, therefore, is. Somebody gets born again with that deception that only two or three people go to heaven. I remember one guy was saying, oh, you get in a stadium of Christians and only two people are going to heaven. The rest, if Jesus returned, they will not go to heaven. I don't believe in that. Why? Because the Bible has told us the qualifications of going to heaven. You adding extra qualifications only means you're adding to the word or taking away from the word. That's not true. Be very careful and keep to the scripture. I tell people, God would not fault me if what I was fighting for was what I could prove by scripture. Some of you have things in there that have been built as strongholds. You cannot justify them through the scriptures, but emotionally, you can justify them. By physical experience, you can justify them. And then you think that that's enough to qualify you to speak as you know, an authority in something. No, you're not an authority because you have experiences Canal. You're an authority because you are basing everything you're teaching on the Bible. Are we following what I'm saying? So I don't think that that person who said that story, that there are only two who go to heaven every year, after walking with God this far, can believe what they said. They have some repentances to make with their God. Are you following what I'm saying? 
That's why our challenge today with Christians is firstly to help you understand the devil from the optics of God. God tells you this is who the devil, according to his person, nature and life. I'll give you an example. The Bible speaks of how one day people will behold the devil for who he is. Isaiah 14, 16 says, they shall look at you narrowly. Do you know what it means to narrowly look at Satan? It means the day some of you in heaven get finally the revelation of who Satan is because you have a very wrong, wrong, wrong vision of Satan. Very wrong one for over the years you've seen this big, ginormous thing that, you know, you have this whole revelation of Satan that is so wrong. God says that day, some of us already see it, but some of you don't yet, but that day, the Bible says, they shall narrowly look upon thee. That means the day God gives you the true vision of who you are and your weight spiritually, how big you are spiritually, because some of you confuse your physical body with your spiritual mind. No, no, no. Your spiritual mind is way bigger than your body. Way bigger. That's why the Bible calls some people strong men. They're not strong because they go to the gym. They're strong because spiritually they have built up their mind. You know, for example, when you speak in tongues, the Bible says, he that speaketh in tongues built of himself up like an edifice. Imagine if you're praying in tongues, let me show you what happens spiritually. When you pray in tongues, in the spirit realm, you are expanding. You understand? You are expanding. You can find a man physically this size, but in the spirit, is bigger than this room. Okay? Now, one day, at the end of ages, when we're all carried there, to have the true vision of what we really are and what the devil was. God says in Isaiah, you will have to narrowly look at him. You literally have to like, and consider saying, is this the man that made the earth to tremble and by whom kingdoms shook? Some of you the day you see Satan, your biggest shock will be how small he was, that you won't believe that he was the one put cancer in somebody's body. Now you see what I'm saying? Some of you are waiting for that day. But God can give you that vision if you continue beholding the true vision of Christ. Are you following what I'm saying? Like you know the devil differently from how God has defined him. So it is with many things. That's how some of you look at cancer. That's how some of you look at HIV. That's how some of you see diabetes. That's how some of you see hypertension. That's how some of you see death. That's how some of you see poverty. That's how you see everything in the world. You see the world from a very, very corrupted vision. And therein is my point. That one of the tricks the devil has used for years, and I'm going to prove that by scripture, has always been corrupting your vision. Because if you can corrupt your vision to see things differently from what they really are, then there is nothing you can't put in your body. There is nothing you cannot kill. There is nothing you cannot frustrate. There is nothing you cannot take away. You see? For example, you walk to a doctor, the doctor tells you, you know what? You're suffering from an incurable disease. In this room, I have people who are healed of cancer. 
You see? But in the same world, there are people who are dying of the same disease. Why? The disease is the same. The vision is different. You see? For example, when you come to the healing meetings, you saw that on the anniversary, worship for two hours. And the Lord told me, I'm opening heaven. Those of you who are there. And you remember me announcing and telling you, heaven is open. And the Spirit told me, just declare healing. Don't pray for the sick. I started. Now, the lame are walking right now. Tumors are disappearing. Diseases are leaving. You remember the woman who had a tumor in her breast? It disappeared immediately. You saw people with wheelchairs, clutches. The crippled were walking. You know what's happening? The vision of God. The vision of God. It's making easy and simple. What you, in your eyes of men, looks impossible. Some people, there's a lady, I was told of somebody who came in the meeting and said, I don't believe those things are true. Do they really happen? You see, I know why she doesn't believe that. Because for so long, she has had a wrong vision of God and what God can do and has a very deceived vision of who Satan is and what he can do. Many of you live in that way. You just don't know, but you live that way. When your vision is corrupted, Satan can do anything to you. He can put anything on you. Somebody walked to me years ago and she told me they found diabetes. Full-blown diabetes in the body. And I told her, go back tomorrow to the same doctors and they check that diabetes. It won't be there. 24 hours later, the one they wanted to admit the day before because of diabetes went back to the same doctor and they could not trace diabetes. Same doctors! But something has happened in 24 hours that has changed the system of somebody's body because that's how we know God. That's how we know God. There is nothing He cannot change. There is nothing He cannot heal. Nothing. 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 My auntie brought a cousin. She can testify. She's here in this room. Girl was dying. Hepatitis. She was literally dying. Literally dying. Prayed for her, fell under the power of God, went back to the doctor, and the very doctor could not trace it in just hours. Do you understand what I'm saying? The word of God, the word, this thing you read, this thing you read, and generally speaking, if you have so much doubt, at least think from a common sense perspective that whatever you're suffering from, somebody has survived. If you're saying cancer, somebody in this world has been healed of cancer. If you're saying HIV, whether by science or not, somebody in this world has been healed of HIV. Whether they're saying it's scientific or not, at least somebody in the world has defeated whatever is disturbing you yet you're a human being like they are. Are you following what I'm saying? If you're talking about the struggles you have in your household, the issues of your marriage, somebody in this world has gone through worse issues in your, their marriage and they have beaten it. So there is nothing in this world that can tempt you that is not common to man. That's what Jesus was saying. Nothing testing you somebody has not gone through and beaten. So why shouldn't you be among them that beat it? Why should you be among them that lose? Are you following? If you're talking about foundations and backgrounds, somebody has come from a worse foundation and background than you are and has made it. How can you not make it? 
Why should you be among them which don't make it? Corrupted vision. Corrupted vision. I was sharing with somebody. Somebody said, some time ago and said, oh, Apostle Grace insinuates that those who are rich are righteous and those who are pure are unrighteous. And I told him, no, that's not what I teach. There's no righteousness in whether you're rich or you're poor. No. Now I've corrected that. I'm only trying to tell you, this man Jesus, when he came, he came to give us a choice. He gave us a choice. You remember the woman who was washing Jesus' feet? And then Judas, being a thief, was disturbed and said, you know, instead of wasting this oil on Jesus' feet, wouldn't we have sold it and given it to the poor? And Jesus answered a very profound answer. He said, you will always have with you the poor. You'll always have the poor among you. You understand? Now, when the Bible says you'll always have the poor among you, Somebody in this room can choose to be the poor one among us. And that's okay. You understand? Because the Bible has showed you how we make wealth. But he's saying that there are people who are not going to do the principles that govern the world of building wealth. If you're not going to do those principles, you're going to be among the poor. You see what I'm saying? So when he says that there will be the poor among you, we expect that there are going to be poor people among us. Some of us just refuse to be the poor ones. We chose to be the rich ones and have the poor among us. That they make us more righteous or them more righteous. Likewise, they make us less righteous or them less righteous. It only means the principles of God and creating wealth have been clear. You can do them and become prosperous. You can refuse and stay poor. That's not a prosperity gospel. That's just the truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? Some people think that everyone who talks about finances is a prosperity preacher because again, they have a very wrong vision of God. They think that poverty comes with righteousness. Blessed are the poor. He wasn't talking about financial. If you read your Bible, he was talking about spirit. For they shall what? They shall what? Yeah, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means the end of that man is not that he's going to stay poor. No, he said the poor in spirit, those that do not know God, they are blessed because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. They can actually receive Jesus. That's the literal interpretation. The kingdom of God is available for them. That does not mean that because you're poor, therefore you're more blessed to go to heaven than people who are. He told them that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a what? A camel to enter a needle. And then his disciples, because they were all rich men, the Bible says, they got worried. So the Bible says, when they heard, Matthew 19, 25, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? Were those poor men? Were those poor men? They said, who then can be saved? Because Matthew was rich, Peter was rich, John said, oh my goodness. Next line. He said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That means if you're poor with God, you'll go to heaven. If you're poor without God, you'll not go to heaven. If poverty is the guarantee of going to heaven, if a man die no God and they're poor, does that mean that because they're poor, therefore heaven is ready for them? Come on, help me. You understand? The principle is clear. 
You believe that Jesus is Lord in your heart and you confess him for salvation. So if a man is poor and they have not received Jesus Christ, they mean that because they're poor, therefore the kingdom of God is available for them. That's what some people teach because they have a wrong vision of God. Satan from the beginning of the earth has tempted us simply by giving corrupt visions. Matthew, a story is given, the 16th chapter. Jesus comes to his disciples from about the 13th verse. He asks them, who do men say I am? Some say you are Elijah. Some say you are John the Baptist. Some say you're among some of the prophets. He says, ah, okay. Then who do you think I am? The Bible says, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, comma, the Son of the living God. Did you hear that? Next line. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bajona. Listen, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in what? Which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. When did Jesus name him Peter? Answer me. Jesus named him Peter when he got the revelation that this man is the Christ, the son of the living God. He tells him, now you are Peter. Are you following what I'm saying? But here is a mystery. Before that, before Jesus said that, he was always Bajona, son of Jonah. Are you following? Son of who? Jonah. Now we turn. He calls him Peter. But let's go back again to that portion of scripture. Who do men say I am? Okay. The Bible says, Simon Peter replied. Who has understood it? Simon Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Son of Bajona could not say that. So it's almost as though Matthew is telling us, Jesus didn't name him when he said you are Peter. Who has understood what I just said? The naming in there came through the man that manifested in him to get the revelation of the Christ as a son of the living God. And Jesus affirms what already he was because a son of Jonah would not have that vision. You understand? Why didn't Matthew say, son of Bajona, replied? He was deliberate. The scripture was deliberate to say Simon Peter. He was spiritually Peter. But that revelation of saying you are the Christ, the son of God, that then was the manifestation of his naming physically of what he had been built spiritually by reason of his faith in Christ. You see, that's why I said, you must understand how God names us. We're named differently. We're named differently. Never forget this. If you will forget everything, you're named according to your assignment. When my mother was six months pregnant, God appeared to her and told him, call him Grace. His male, call him Grace. You see what I'm saying? I am simply fulfilling what God ordained me to be before I was formed in my mother's womb or even before I existed in the earth. That's why I told you, some of you, you're carrying goddesses' names 
Jewish goddesses, Greek goddesses, pagan god names, and you are allowed to be identified that way. You don't know the seriousness of what you're pronouncing on your life. And you think God is going to consecrate that name into a definitive destiny. That's not how God works. I have always told you, he doesn't consecrate names. He changes them. I've always insisted on that. God doesn't consecrate names. He changes them. He didn't consecrate Abraham. He changed his name. He didn't consecrate Jacob. He changed his name. He didn't consecrate Bajona. He changed his name. You're not going to be the first one to change the pattern of God. And some of you, if you don't understand this, I've said this now for the third time, because I still see some of you keep those names. You're frustrating more than you know. You're frustrating more than you know. Find out the meaning of your name. Because whether you want it or not, every time it is called, two things answer, you and some other spirit. Every time it is called, two entities answer, you and some other spirit. And then you ask somebody, what's the meaning of your name? I don't know the meaning of my name. How can you not know the meaning of your name? How can you be in the world and you know the meaning of everything? Like one wise man said, it's a generation that knows the price of everything, but knows the value of none. Did you hear that? They know the price of everything, but know the value of nothing. How can you be in the world and you know the meaning of what, but you don't know the meaning of your name? What does auspicious mean? Auspicious is... You define it. Define the meaning of the word called cow. Define the meaning of the word called augmented. Augmented is, you even give us the spelling. And then after that, give us the meaning. Okay, what's the meaning of your name? What's your bearing in the spirit? How are you identified? When you're getting birth certificates, your name is your identity because that's how God has designed the spirit realm to be. Don't be deceived. I'm helping somebody. Stop being called names that are of pagan gods. Mokasa. The Mokasas. You're proud. We're the Mokasas. We have a name here called Namakula. Namakula is a disease. Then you find somebody being called Namakula, Christine. How can you be called Christine? This is a good name, and then you're Namakula. It's like salvation and disease all together in one. And when you ask God why your lungs don't heal, <laughs> refuse to be named names that don't make sense. Parents, pray about names. Don't just name your kid against the movie actor. The guy just sees a beautiful girl, and then you say, Cameron Diaz, Nabuetemi. <laughs> you understand? Eh? At least some people name after freedom fighters, which is okay. Kwame Nkuruma Rogers, or that's okay. But how can you name your kid eh? a movie actor? A movie actor, Will Smith, Senyondo. And yet it's also not his real name. His real name is different. That's his straight name. You understand? Don't just name your kids. Don't just name your kids. 
So, Simon receives the revelation. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, you're Peter. From today on, by Jonah. He changed his surname. He changed his surname. And then he says, on this rock, this one, of having a revelation of the true revelation of who I am, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the one hell cannot kill. This is the one hell cannot frustrate. This is the one hell cannot prevail against because war is not on its gates. It's on the gates of hell. He says the gates of hell. He called them the gates of hell will not prevail. That means the war is at the gate of hell, not at your gate. We are the ones on the offensive. Satan isn't. That's the real direction of the church, real position of the church. We are the ones evading hell. Hell is not the one evading us. Although again, there are Christians here. For you now, hell is the one evading you. Amanda attack, Amanda attack, Amanda attack. When will you attack also? Come on. When will you attack also? In high school, I had a friend, being a long-term friend up to now, he's still my friend. Interesting, he's also called Simon. So one of those days I'm walking, and then Simon comes, I think he slapped me or something, and then I got mad. It's a big boy like this, big. So when I got mad, I don't know, something in there just told me, just this guy. Maybe, you know, get back at him too, slap him or something. So this guy hits me, and then he runs, and then I start chasing him. I'm angry. And then Simon is running, he reaches the middle like that, and then turns, and then comes back to me chasing me. Now, I also don't know what happened between the turn or not. I just found myself again. <laughs> I'm asking myself, why are you running? But there's something in there also telling me, why not? <laughs> Guy's bigger than you. Maybe something has changed in his head, and then he wants to take you out. And wisdom, I mean, if Jesus went through a basket and we know, revelation. So, I flee. That picture still comes to me. You know why? Because some of you, you're the one being chased. The devil has to me, this is on my neck. Oh, you know, my children, oh, my business. Everywhere it seems like things, like literally they're around you. They're trying to destroy you. Yet there are people in this world They are the ones putting war on the gate of hell. They are the ones, the devil is the one crying. Some people, the devil says, I know Paul. Why? Because he puts someone on his gates. You understand what I'm saying? I know Jesus. I know Apostle Grace. I know. Yeah, your name, you who just said it. The gates of hell, not your gates, okay? Let's continue. He says, and I will give you keys. Whatever you lose on the earth shall be losing in heaven. Whatever you bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven. Okay? Immediately when he is sure they have understood that this mandate is the Christ. Already the books of Moses tell them, the prophets Isaiah, they have these books. They have been kept in the synagogues. They understand this is the one in Isaiah 53 that is supposed to be slain for the foundation of the world, wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. This is the one that was promised that should come to die for mankind. Ah, now when he knows, they know he is the Christ. Next line says, he began to show unto his disciples how 
that he must go to Jerusalem. Not wishes, not could, must, that he's trying to fulfill divine purpose to go to Jerusalem. But the Bible here, I love that it uses the, word, the language showed them. He's begun to show them. That means in whatever he was speaking, he was trying to cast a vision on their spirit so they can have the right vision of why he must go to Jerusalem. This is more than him speaking to them. He is revealing something to them. Their eyes, the eyes of their understanding are getting the light of divine purpose. He tries to show them that he must go to Jerusalem, must suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Okay? He's telling them it's a plan. It has to go that way. There's no way you can stop it. Next line, Peter took him and began to rebuke him. He says, no way, my Lord. This shall not be unto thee. Okay? For probably three reasons. Number one, maybe like many Jews, the confusion of Peter is they thought that Jesus, he came, I mean, to destroy the kingdom of Rome, which they were subservient under, of whose colonies they were. Maybe they thought this man has come to build an army so they can defeat Rome. And that was their definition of a savior. That was myopic. Perhaps they thought from that way. But two also, most likely, Peter was trying to defend his friend, his brother, okay? Brother, phileo, brotherly love. And I've shared before that there are three kinds of love. You have eros, which is passion. You have phileo, which is brotherly love. You have stoge, which is friendship. And then you have agape, which is the love of God, the purest and highest form of love. But because you're using English, which is a very inferior and actually pragmatic if compared to Greek and Hebrew, okay, all of that, the English will call love. When you go to the Greek, where the New Testament is written, it now will give you the variations. That here, when we say love, here we're talking about passion, here we're talking about stoge, friendship, here we're talking about brotherly love, or here we're talking about the love which is of God. You understand? But only because you have appreciated liturgic language. Hebrew and Greek, the high-dimensional languages. Now, understand here, Peter always looked at Jesus and loved him as a brother. Phileo. So it's out of that brotherly love. He says, no, I cannot let you die from here. And you always see it in, in the text. You see the pattern. One time they are attacked. What does Peter do? He draws a sword. Slices off a guy's ear. Why? Probably, like number one reason I gave, maybe he's thinking this is now where the war starts. <laughs> you understand? I have people in this ministry who are like that. They're my Peters. You touch me. You touch me. Huh? If you touch Apostle Grace, they slice you, then we talk later. But when they've sliced you, they don't want to know. They first slice you, I put back the ear, then we talk. They're like that. <laughs> now listen. So Peter, in his head, he's ready for war. Disciples are like, no, we're not going this road. Okay? Jesus heals. Maybe, just maybe, according to Scripture, the vision of Peter never healed the day God rebuked Satan out. Satan kept casting some visions on this man. That's why you see him later, even on the sword, eh? drawing the sword. He's still with a certain what? Mindset in 18. 
So when Jesus rebukes Satan in 16, Matthew, and 18, this man is drawing the sword, it means something never left. Something never left. It's just two chapters after. Something never left with my brother. Now, but this is why. Because he had an inferior vision on love. It was only in brotherly love. And many of you live there. But when you do, and you cannot see the higher love, agape, which is the love of God, the highest, you're usually going to find yourself corrupting vision, or Satan corrupting your vision about life. That's why later, Jesus comes to Peter and says, do you love me? But I love how John says it. John 21, 15, when they had died, Jesus said, listen, to Simon Peter, comma. You'd think he would say, Simon Peter. No, but he says, Simon, comma, son of Jonas. Do you see that there's something in there? Do you see that there's a mystery there? If you're a reader, already there's something. Because this man has been named twice in the same verse. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, comma, Simon, son of Jonas. He didn't say Simon Peter. Because there were fragments in this man's life that had not connected to the mantle of his naming. Who has understood? Now that's why as ministers, as you grow, you must understand that there's a huge correlation between your naming spiritually and the function of your mantle. And the function of your mantle. That is why when you go to God, you must know that he is. It's important. Comma, and that he's the reward of them that diligently seek him. If you walk to me and you provoke the prophetic in me, I will prophesy. If you walk to me and provoke the teacher in me, I will teach. If you walk to me and provoke the healing grace on my life, I will heal you by the grace of God. If you walk to me as a friend, you'll only provoke friendship. That's how mantles work. If you deal with me as you're just your blood relative, I'll relate with you as a blood relative. That's how mantles work. They work with their naming. They work with their naming. Now, let's go back. Simon Peter, comma. Then he says, But Jonah, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than this? But if you study the Greek word there, he asks him, Do you agape me? Do you love me with the love God is and has loved us in the highest form of love? And then he says, you know it, my Lord, I love thee. When you study the Greek there, it's I phileo you. You see, these are two men speaking the word love, but they both have different meanings based on where they are positioned spiritually. That's a deep thing. I know you're smart enough to figure that out. I know you've understood that, haven't you? So, do you phileo me? I agape you. Do you phileo me second time? I agape you. He's doing that all three times. And some people say, I've heard people teach that Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Because Peter doubted Jesus three times. And I tell them, no. Even though you can say that and it's a revelation, you know, that catches the simple, it still cannot be justified in the way of God. Because it's not in the way of God for you to repeat a repentance four times or three times because you sinned three times for him to forgive you. The Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive all our sins, plural, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
you've done a million sins, and then you tell God, I'm sorry, right there, all the million is rubbed off. Otherwise, if you go by the principle that Peter denied Jesus three times, therefore three times he had to say he loves him, that means every time you have sinned, you have to make the equal measure of repentance. That's why some of you, depending on how many times you messed up, you're still repenting up to now. You're using that doctrine. But that's wrong. Tell anybody, that's wrong. Are you following me, child of God? Now, his Jesus is trying to shift Bajona into the position of Peter. He's trying to shift him from phileo, brotherly love, and be elevated to agape, which is the love of God. Because the assignments that come with agape are higher than the assignments that come in phileo, brotherly love. Three times he asks the man and he realizes the vision Peter beholds is phileo. Then tells him, feed my sheep. The question, what if Peter has said, I agape? Are you following? There are deeper things in there, but that's for you to study. Now, back to what I'm trying to tell us here. Peter, even in trying to refuse Jesus, was brotherly love, I believe. But also the hope of redemption through fighting physical wars. By that, Jesus, if you go back in Matthew, after he rebuked Jesus, verses 23, but he turned and said to Peter, he turned and said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou sufferest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. Imagine the man who had a revelation of who Christ was, in the next second has received a corrupt vision of who God is. Therein is temptation. Therein is the core temptation Satan has for humankind. Go back to Genesis. He comes to Adam and Eve and tells them, you know, eat this fruit. You know, you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The Bible says as he continued speaking, he cast a vision on who? On Eve. The Bible says, and the woman saw that the tree was good for food, one, pleasant to the eyes, two, that's all vision, three, and able to make one wise. Satan cast a vision on Eve to see wisdom. How does wisdom look like? How many of you have seen wisdom by the Spirit? You see, not many of you have seen wisdom by the Spirit, but Satan created a form of wisdom in the spirit. And when Eve saw that, that was the beginning of man's fall. When they ate it, poo. Now all people have paid a price because Adam and Eve had a wrong vision of Satan. This is the wrong vision of life, God and everything. Corrupted vision, I call it. This is the same thing that he has brought to Peter. Divert his vision and give him a wrong understanding of Jesus' purpose. And when he did, Jesus knew this was not Peter. This was Satan in Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou severest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. He rebuked him openly because he knew this was a devil and a man. Now, if a man who has just had the right revelation and then Jesus shows them why he must, he explains his assignment. And in the next day, he is frustrating the work of God by corrupted vision. 
How many people do you think go through this every day? Is it that your marriage is not really working or you have a corrupted vision of marriage? Fundamentally. I'll give you an example. Nothing in the inferior loves by God should break marriage. Did you know that? Because agape, 1 Corinthians 13, never fails. Verse 8, love never fails. That's agape. When you study the Greek, agape never fails. Eros can fail. Passion can fail. Friendship can fail in couples. Are you following? So somebody says, uh, if a marriage has no passion, why should you keep that person? That, let me tell you. Did Jesus divorce you because you don't pray? Isn't that intimacy with God? Because you didn't fast and didn't pray. Some of you have not been praying for so long. Last time you prayed was last week or the other year. But you're in this church and Jesus loves you. Has he divorced you because you didn't pray? Do you understand how myopic we are? Because marriage is not defined in passion. It's not defined even in the friendships you have. Marriage is not defined by the feelings you have for each other. That's eros. Marriage is not defined in the intimacies. It's a covenant. That's why when you make your vows before God, you're making commitments, not expressing feelings. Do you understand? Somebody tells you, oh no, you know, he has not uh, slept with me for two months. I'm going to divorce him. Oh, he has not taken me out for four weeks. He's not going to divorce him. She has not answered my, 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 my is it marriage anymore? I'm living like a brother. You, you're sick. You're sick. <laughs> We're living like brother and sister. So, but it's agape present. Yes. Then keep your marriage. Because you cannot tell God that you divorce the person because they are no longer your friend. God does not base on friendship to join you. If he's the one who joined you. He that is joined of the Lord or whatever God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Some of you, you look at your relatives, you're also a man and you can put it asunder. Grow up. Because once we enter that corrupted vision, Marriage is no longer marriage. You marry, you divorce. If you're tired, you know, if they eat badly, you divorce. If they gain weight, you divorce. You understand? If they become shorter, you divorce. If it's just not working. And then I hear couples, it sickens me. It's not working. What do you mean it's not working? What is it's not working? What does it mean? We're not getting along. We can't talk to each other. Yeah, yeah. Because you're not talking to each other, that mean it's not working. A marriage works because God has joined you. And it doesn't matter how many friends you have, if God hasn't joined the two of you, it can't work. So is it working on your opinion or the opinion of heaven? Are you following what I'm saying? Because you're great friends with somebody, if God hasn't joined the two of you, it doesn't matter how much you do things married people do, it still won't work because God is not in it. 
It works because God is in it. So there might be indifferences, yes, granted, but God is in it. That's important. That's why I tell couples, before you marry, you guys who have fallen in love, this is the one fundamental question you must ask God. Are you behind this or not? But he has a child. Yes. Is God in it or not? Because even if you marry one who didn't have a child before and God is not in it, is not in it. Have I helped somebody? Corrupted vision. Now leave that from marriage and go into your finances. Why don't you give your tithes? Why don't you give your seeds? Why don't you give your first fruits? Corrupted vision. Money became your God. You look at mammon as your God. Oh, but I have many debts. Oh, so you're putting the principles of God above your need and then you tell me you trust in God. You see what I'm saying? Then you frustrate your financial life. You frustrate your financial life. Frustrating a lot. Frustrate a lot. It's not working. Corrupted vision. Pastors, ministers who are watching me right now. Your ministry will not grow if you have a corrupted vision of Christ. Because Christ is the builder of the church. He says, I will build my church. He said on this rock, I will build my church. Maybe you're the one building it. Maybe God is not building it. You're the one building your church. And then you're blaming everyone else instead of stopping to build. And then allow Jesus to build your church. You see the difference? You understand what I'm saying? Everything else, why your finances are frustrated, why your body is sick. Some of you, the reason why you cannot heal you have a corrupted vision. When the doctor told you this is incurable, you believed it. When the doctor told you this one can't heal, you took it. They corrupted your vision. Every time it comes, ah, oh, you're like, I think this is a sign of what? Death. Do you know how many people have suspected they're sick of what they're not suffering from and they even went to a doctor to check and the doctor confirms what already heaven knew? Do you understand what I'm saying? You have a disease in your body and every sign that comes, you say, ha, now, eh, this must be a sign eh, that eh, the other disease is growing. And sometimes, fuck, you're just having flu, normal flu everyone has. But you've already attributed it to something, okay? That means your vision is corrupted. Who told you diabetes can't heal? A doctor. God? No, doctor. Who told you high blood pressure cannot heal? Who? Doctor. Who said, but you see, they've, they've done research. Doctors are an extended arm of God's healing power. They are not his arm. They're just an extended one. The core, the core is the anointing. Doctors are just an extension. The core. It's like if you have an extension, eh? and there's a, an electric plug, eh? then you plug that extension. That's an extension. But the real power, the real, real power, without that plugging, that extension can't work. And some extensions cannot hold some voltages. <laughs> Who has understood it? You plug in something, it blows out. Why? Because it can't handle some voltages. It's just an extension. It's not the core. You understand what I'm saying? It's not the core. 
So, everything you're dealing with, you examine yourself. Why can't I believe that this is going to change? Why can't I believe that my marriage can heal? Why can't I believe that my kid can be restored? Why can't I believe that my womb will open? Why can't I believe? You have a corrupted vision. Let me tell you, this man you serve said, whatsoever you ask. This one, this one I'm talking about, he looked at every possible scenario where it would spell impossible and he still alluded to whatsoever you ask. If you believe, if you believe that you receive them, not if you believe that I can do it. Some of you just believe that God can do it, but you don't believe that you receive it. Do you know the attitude of a person who has received healing even when they're sick? They get up and do things healed people do. Not acting out to be, but acting out because they know they have. There's a difference. I see two people acting in faith. One will die and one won't. Why? Because one working in faith is trying to do that so healing can come. And the other one is doing it because they know healing has come. Vision. You see it in your prayer. You enter prayer with your victimized complex. You go in prayer, oh God. Somebody went to God and says, what did I do? You're praying next to somebody and you're like, how can somebody begin a prayer by, me, what did I do? God, what did I do? And that's where they began prayer from. They already think God has already some with them. I mean, how, how, how can this not happen? You already have issues with me. So you're going to a God who you know hates you. You're trying to tell him, you're rebuking him. Like Peter rebuked Jesus. What do you want? Like, can't you forgive me? You, you know. You know, I found a very spoiled kid. And I'm going to say that hard as I can because it is spoiled. And not child because they were young in age, but child because by reason of their poor upbringing, they didn't mature. Yet they are old people. So I see them as a child. And then somebody says, you know me, eh? When I'm talking to God, I tell him like he's my friend, yeah? Like, I tell him, no, here, God, eh? I'm not happy. Mm -mm. I think I'm going to quit. One time I even told God, you know what, eh? If you don't do this, eh? I'll come back to church, eh? Like, so you look at this. <laughs> Child, spiritual. Mature adult, a child spiritual. And they have no reverence for God. No honor or fear for God. How can you talk to God like you're talking to? You see, when you say Abraham was a friend of God, it doesn't mean that there was no reverential fear of God. Abraham had the fear of God. How do you know? This friend of God. Remember the three men who come to bring the prophecy of Sarah giving birth to a child. The Bible says he went and killed animals brought them food. When he brought them food, they started eating. You remember those three angels? When he baked them cakes and heart and then sat them down to eat, the Bible says, Abraham waited on them while they ate. He waited. Read Genesis 18 verses 8. Give me the message version. Message. Then he got cards and milk, brought them with a calf that had been roasted, set the meal before the men, and stood there under the tree while they ate. Abraham refused to eat with them because he knew who they were. He was a friend of God. He was a friend of God. 
but he's sad. Why? Do you want more salt? I'll get it. Do you want more sugar? I'll get it. Do you want more soup? I'll get it. This was a friend of God. Some of you think, I am a friend of God. And I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. When you set that table, you're the first one. Man, hurry, I'm starved. Hurry, I'm starved. Hey, first pass me that chicken. Eh? No, that's, listen, listen. Some of you should grow up. Some of you should grow up. Being friends with God does not mean we don't reverence and have honor. How do you go in the presence of God like a child? I told Jesus, eh? me here, I'm done. You know me, I tell him Isaiah. Eh? When I don't want to pray, I tell him, you know what, Jesus, you know, I don't want to pray. Ash, good night. And he understands. He loves me. <laughs> oh, yes, he does love you, but you're spoiled. You're spoiled. You're spoiled. You're spoiled. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Give the Lord a clap of praise. Come on, let's clap for Jesus. Let's clap for Jesus. If you've never given your life to Jesus and you say, today I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, just repeat these words after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you because you shed your blood for my sins and you were raised for my glory. Today, I receive you as Lord of my life. Change me. Deliver me. Transform me. Amen. This sermon has been brought to you by Fenero Ministries International. For more information, contact us on telephone number plus 256-200-999400 or email us at info at You can also find us on the web at www.fenero.org. Follow us on our social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at Fenero Ministries International. Or better still, feel free to join us every Thursday for our weekly fellowships at the Uma Upper Gardens from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. and for our Sunday services at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. at the Uma Multipurpose Hall. Fenero, make manifest.